Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. A um, few things I have to say. One is we personally are involved both as a lifestyle, a ketogenic diet, but also through my 16 years of clinical practice of what is effective. What do people need to take sometimes, all the time, to support their ketogenic diet? You'll get bits and pieces of this ongoing week after week. It's important to be comprehensive. In one way, it's simple. and one way, it's a little bit complicated. Welcome back, everybody, to the next episode of the Keto Naturopath. This is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. And today we're going to be talking about something that some of you may actually think it's off topic relative to ketosis and the ketogenic diet, but I think it's essential. It certainly strikes to the heart of naturopathic medicine in this particular application. So what I'd like to go into today is Parkinson's disease, not so much the pathophysiology, but a little bit of understanding what that is, but in case you're not aware of this, if you were to give a Parkinson's patient ketones, C8, specifically C8, so let's say it's our product, C8 Keto MCT oil, the best you can buy in the market, their tremors would decrease because their livers has immediately produced ketones and the ketones would feed portions of their brains that control the tremors. It's not going to give them in essence, dopamine, which is basically what Parkinson's is, is is an inability to produce dopamine. So I'm just laying that out as the curious thing up front. It's not that curious when we start to understand it. But so we have Parkinson's that immediately gets better with a ketogenic diet, immediately gets better with uh, ketones, specifically C8, because that's the most efficient fat to convert to ketones within 15 minutes. And some even argue exogenous ketones. If I had Parkinson's, I definitely would try with or without exogenous ketones and see how effective they were. There's obviously a price of that. It's much more expensive. And now you have uh, various types of exogenous ketones. And so that additional cost would probably be anywhere from $500 to $3,000, depending on how effective they were for you and how much you personally could afford to pay for this. So, and versus C8, which is certainly something that is nominal relative to those other two options. So we're going to talk about ketones, Parkinson's. We know that it's been well-documented. You could go on YouTube and go Parkinson's and ketosis, and you'll see a number of people showing their own testimonies of actually it's C8 that they were taking. And so I've taken exogenous ketones and now have a, an incentive to pitch you to buy their exogenous ketones that they're representing. But nonetheless, I believe what you're seeing in terms of the YouTube video is authentic and is true. So to that part, we're going to cover a little bit that we're going to say that's the known. The part that's not known is the causative aspects of Parkinson's. And so some of you are thinking, well, why do we care about the cause? Because by the time you have Parkinson's, you're obviously beyond the cause. Well, um, that's a good question. The answer would be that it has to do with pesticides. I think it get very specific. And when we, uh, when you hear anybody, if you go to a, a keto conference, if you go on and you listen to the various quote-unquote authorities on uh, ketosis, and some have treated patients for decades, so you can't argue with that. I mean, they definitely know what they're talking about, but they've never gone as far as saying when you're talking about the 20 grams of carbs per day, when they talk about 20 grams of carbs per day, 
That's usually veggies. Okay, so that's veggies. All right, well, then why don't they go as far as to say you really need to have these be organic? Because if they're not organic, and you're one of the many people that are susceptible, genetically susceptible to these particular pesticides, then we have sort of omitted a truth that you need to know. So let me go a little further with that. If you have Parkinson's and we're counseling you, now I'm pretending I'm one of those ketogenic authorities that have treated patients for decades, which I have not, I would be, I would say in one hand, I'm helping you improve your situation by getting into ketosis and C8 or whatever you want to experiment with in terms of generating ketones. But at the same time, I'm omitting, I'm overlooking, I'm neglecting, telling you that it is well known. It is no longer esoteric. It is well known that there's a number of pesticides that directly affect and are causative to uh Parkinson's disease. And so therefore, me being this authority and telling you about your 20 grams of carbs per day and how that comes from veggies, I would beg you, I should beg you to get organic because to continue to eat the thing that is causing you to have pesticides on the one hand could be worsening your situation and in the other other hand, merely restraining improvements that you could be having, okay? So this is the point that I'm trying to make. That's why we're talking about the cause because it's an ongoing environmental toxin. It's an ongoing environmental toxin that you are exposing yourself to. And I just think it's part of the whole package. This is what we do naturopathically by saying, uh, even with cancer patients, you know, we tell them what to take out when we look at their diet, but we actually try to make sure that we're avoiding what we think were particular potential causes for cancer. That's a big area, but you have to talk about environmental toxins. It is the proverbial 800-pound gorilla in the room when you don't talk about environmental toxins. To elaborate a little bit longer, one of the reasons people don't talk about this, and so they're not bad people, they're not dishonest people, I'm just saying they're remiss, and this is a valuable piece of information that we're going to elaborate on today, but the reason they don't want to do this, because it kind of complicates the simplicity of encouraging people to go on the ketogenic diet. Their position is, you know, it's complicated enough to get anybody, adults, anybody to make a change in their life for the better. And I'll testify that as a naturopathic doctor. It is hard to have people change their diets unless they are severely in pain or have some tremendous issue in their life. They're more than likely not that motivated to make a change. So these physicians are and or authorities are sort of saying the same thing. It's like, you know, let's keep the message as simple as we possibly can. Let's not talk them about, let's not talk about IGF and dairy. Let's not talk about estrogen and in, uh, and dairy as well. Let's not talk about environmental toxins, heavy metals and fish, pesticides and vegetables. If we open that can of worms, the chances of said patient, said person, said interested party thinking about engaging in the ketogenic diet will be severely diminished. I get that. I get that. But all you see, all you need to see is a few patients. All you need to treat is a few patients with Parkinson's and realize that it is a tremendously uh, difficult situation for them to face. 
So publicly, we think of, if you've never seen a person with Parkinson's, think of Michael J. Fox, an amazing person for all he's continued to do with his disability. You think Pope John Paul, the Pope of two popes ago, who you know made his manifestation of Parkins public, you know, that life is clearly part suffering. That's the message that he wanted to have everybody see to show him his suffering. Uh, anyways, he had Parkinson's. Who else would we see? Um, a number of actors have just been diagnosed, uh, whom I think Alan Olive was just diagnosed and had a public statement about um, Parkinson's. He had Parkinson's. So it's a neurological issue. So let's talk about this a little bit. And I'm going to do some reading from papers. Not, I'm not going to get into the weeds, but I'll just uh, read you the headlines, okay? And then uh, we may even get into some general supplement strategy, but I don't you know my positions on supplements. Once you mention, everybody says, "Oh, that's that's my panacea. That's that's the cure." No, it's not the cure. It's something that's going to help a particular situation. Okay, all right. I'm getting a little more relaxed with all these podcasts, so I'm going to have a sip of my coffee, keep my throat going. So I'm actually going to read a little bit from a bedtime reading book. No, not at all uh, about Parkinson's disease. And and I'll give you sort of the straight up part of this. It's Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disorder characterized by rigidity, motor, slowing of movement, gait disturbance, depression, cognitive impairment, and other symptoms. Condition results from the loss of dopamine secreting cells in the substantia nigra. That's in your brain. And while the cause of Parkinson's disease is unknown, it appears, and this is a little bit dated information, but it was the best overall description, appears to be both genetic and environmental factors. And this is so true. Conventional therapy may include levodopa along with peripheral other things. And we'll leave it at that. A number of pesticides, herbicides, and other xenobiotic chemicals are neurotoxins. Paraquant is the name of a pesticide. I'm going to get into some specifics. And by the way, when I mention all these, there'll be links on the podcast to the specific pesticide. So if you're interested, you hit the link and you'll go and you'll find out more about this particular pesticide. And there's at least three or four that I'll be mentioning. So Paraquat, for example, has a chemical structure similar to a fancy chemical name called 1-methyl-4-phenylperidium, which is known to kill brain cells that are destroyed and Parkinson's disease. Okay, so why did I give you that fancy word? Not to show you that I'm smart, I'm not. I'm just reading that sentence. Um, it's because it's a chemical that they have used for the last 40 years to in mice. To They give it to mice, and, they, and it's meant to induce, to block the ability for mice to secrete dopamine. In other words, it gives them Parkinson's. So... They find out after the effect, after the effect, they find out. So that's what they've been using to induce a, and the reason they do this in a lot of different uh, neurological issues, if they can, or diseases, if they can recreate the disease, then they can use that mouse and other animals or whatever that they may be doing this to as well. They'll use them as a collective of Parkinson's mice or Parkinson's apes or, and I'm sorry to to confront you with this truth, but this is how they do this. And so you now have a collective of Parkinson's mice, and now you can start trying uh, different 
therapies on them or whatever your research is. And so that's why they do that. So that's been going on for at least the last 30 or 40 years. So it happens to be now 10 or 20 years later that they discovered, golly, there is a pesticide called Paraquat that's out there that's used on, and we'll get on what it's used specifically for. And that almost is identical to what we've been using to block dopamine, to uh, kill nerve cells that make in the substantia negra of mice. Interesting, eh? Okay. Epidemiological evidence suggests that exposure to one or more of these compounds may contribute to the pathogenesis of Parkinson's. And it goes back in 1994, there are various studies, but these are somewhat interesting. A disease from 1984 to 94 showed that Parkinson's disease was 20 to 50% higher that used agricultural pesticides than in county, counties that did not use pesticides. So what are we saying? We're saying organic farmers don't get, and workers in organic fields do not get Parkinson's. We are saying that workers that use pesticides and um, farmers that live in the area of pesticides do get Parkinson's. Pretty black and white. I mean, that's that's amazing. Up to 50%. Okay. Um, in China, people who worked or lived near industrial chemical plants were four times more likely to develop Parkinson's disease than individuals who worked in undeveloped areas. This is one of the few times in which the We'll call it the redneck Chinese or the redneck Indonesian or the redneck Southeast Asian was more remote. They were doing more agricultural work, usually without, they didn't have the money for pesticides. And so they were actually working in a safer environment. So it's getting pretty, it's pretty, getting pretty substantiated. Okay. Another thing, uh, the connection of the insecticide lindane, this is the second pesticide. So you have pesticides, herbicides, and insecticides. I'm going to call them all pesticides, okay? So the concentration of the insecticide lindane, and I think some of you have heard about lindane, in a substantial nigra was significantly higher in patients. Now we're talking about autopsies of Parkinson's patients' disease than, than in those with Alzheimer's disease and those who died of other causes, basically saying it's the highest in Parkinson's brains and it wasn't anybody else. Okay, moreover, the pesticide dieldrin, which is a long-lasting mitochondrial poison, remember right, the keto, we're talking about ketosis, really the center of the whole regenerating your life and why you're feeling better is about your mitochondria is getting healthier. You know, you're killing off all the bad mitochondria, you're, you're doing mitochondrial biogenesis, which means you're making new and healthier bio, uh, mitochondria. That's about your muscle and a lot of other issues as well. Uh, tissues as well, was detected in the brain of six to 20 patients who had died of Parkinson's disease, but none in 14 patients who had died of other causes. Again, it's another example that was highest in Parkinson's patients. Susceptibility to the adverse effects of neurotoxic chemicals is presumably influenced by the robustness of the detoxification pathways, which is in part genetically determined. So what are we saying? We are saying now it wasn't that complicated. We we're saying now that we all have personal variations. And so when we talk about detoxification, we're talking about your liver primarily. You have a phase one, a phase two, and you have a lot of, I'm not going to get into it, but we have for all, every enzyme that is part of this long, complicated detoxification pathways in your liver, there's always 
the possibility of a genetic variation. And these genetic variations, we call them mutations. And sometimes if the mutation is very common, we'll call it a polymorphism, meaning it's just a very common mutation. Uh, it might even be an enhancement. So it, it gets labeled, it, get defined, it gets discovered, it gets defined, it gets named, and uh, then it gets tested for in the population and you then get a percentage of, oh, how many people have this or what ethnicity has this particular mutation. And there's a lot, so there, there's millions of them. So when it comes to the liver detoxification pathways, we're saying that there are those, and this is just one part of this overall susceptibility to Parkinson's and chemical exposure. We're saying those who have an impaired detoxification pathway genetically are more at risk of Parkinson's because they're not going to be able to excrete, break down, make uh, water soluble or fat soluble and excrete it from the body it's going to bioaccumulate and it will be build up and it will become a neurotoxin specifically for that part of the brain, substantia nigra, and that part of the brain that makes the dopamine. So they're going to, that's how that works. What else can I say? And they talk about various, what they call alleles. Alleles is another way of saying it's a genetic. Another interesting thing is, and you can look this up if you want to, it's what they call SNPs, singular nuclear polymorphisms. We call them SNPs. <clears throat> that's when you have a gene, any particular gene, and you have another gene that's supposed to be identical, but it's off by one um, amino acid, just by one amino acid. So it's a singular nuclear polymorphism. So it means many people might have this particular mutation, and these, and there's a, a SNPs, are, there's catalogs, encyclopedias of SNPs on various things. So you can find, and what's happening now in this last 10 years, especially the 23andMe allows you to know all your SNPs. It's a little bit of information overload, but you call out what we're learning about, let's say in Parkinson's this case, which genes, mutations, which genetic mutations, SNPs, are associated with a decreased detoxification or simply an increase of Parkinson's. It usually has to do with there's a problem of you excreting various chemicals and therefore an increased likelihood of you getting Parkinson's. Okay, perhaps this is complicated, but I'm hoping not. I'm, I'm trying to give you a big picture. And my perspective on all these podcasts is not to dummy this down. I don't want to bury you in terminology, but I think the concepts, and this is what I would have expected of patients as well, is you reach. You need to know this for yourself as well. So the concept of SNPs, singular nuclear polymorphisms, could make you less effective at detoxifying and or other aspects. And we can get into that, but you can actually go look that up on PubMed, you know, SNPs and Parkinson's. There'll be more information than you care to get into. But um, I'm going to mention this concept coming up and I'm not going to get into it. What we would do, and one of my certifications was what they call environmental medicine is like, so what do you do with somebody with Parkinson's? You know, perhaps you can lighten their load of a lot of pesticides and pesticides usually um usually do get excreted they're they're water soluble but they're do their or or they will they will change form from the form they came into and that form they changed into will be more toxic but it bioaccumulates and so if you can help them purge get rid of and the fancy word is depuration if you can help them get it out through sweat through urine through stool uh, and there's various ways you can do that. It's a big deal, and people do notice things. So um, 
my point of mentioning everything so far, you now know what Parkinson's is. You now know there's an association with various pesticides. And you now know that it's a susceptibility that actually many people have. And there can be many various kinds of susceptibility that would increase your likelihood of Parkinson's if you had those exposures. So you can bet, let's just go back and pretend in that California study where you had the organic workers and farmers that didn't get Parkinson's and the 20 to 50% above the average population incidence of Parkinson's in in a regular pesticide farm. Well, those 20 to 50% were people who had the increased susceptibility. So not everybody with that exposure of these things will get Parkinson's. Only those, for the most part, and also it depends on the dose of the exposure, right? You can bet that it was a combination of both. Alrighty then, we will come back to supplements on that. Okay, so now you know that they discovered, and now I'm just reading headlines of studies. Here's one, and it's a complicated headline. So I'm not actually going to read it, but I'm going to say that it's 2018, which is pretty recent, and it talks about, you know, that particular, remember that agent they talked about, the one methyl for phenylpyridinum, it, you know, which has now been established the last 20, 30 years. It's now bringing it in and it's another confirmation that yes, indeed, it does affect uh, the substantia nigra and it now just goes into many levels deeper in terms of how this happens. So that's been identified. So there's no question on that. I am going to quickly tell you about the four the four pesticides um, I didn't get anything on dialdrin but the four pesticides that I have that have to do with um, that known associations with Parkinson's is one called meneb m-a-n-e-b and there's going to be a link if you want to look that up it's a fungicide and so this fungicide on plants, right? So, fung- so what does a fungicide do? Well, fungicide usually inhibits the growth of fungus. Makes sense to you, right? Well, how does it do that? That that particular chemical pathway also tends to inhibit a pathway in us. So it says a fungicide which inhibits this particular pathway for synthesizing cortisone in the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. That's a big deal. So it's meant to be on fungicides, you know, and stop the fungus. You say, well, that's a good thing. It's sprayed on crops and you put it on wheat and all these other things that have to be stored. You spray a fungicide on it, or we should have to say non-organic farms that use this and it's a very common uh, fungicide. And so this is now 2015. This is coming from. We have developmental reproductive toxicology from this. We have uh, 2007, Parkinson's was associated with this. And by the way, this is still legal and this is still going on. We have, I'm just reading from everything you need to know about Menib. So on and on it goes. And so this is known, it's been known for a while. And that's the thing. It's a problem with this. It's like, you know, we, we've heard recently about glyphosate and Actually, the Monsanto case of $289 million being awarded to one case because, in essence, Monsanto, now Bayer, got caught lying about everything it knew about glyphosate, which is used as a desiccant on grains and so on. 
And that's how we got this exposure. So too is the same method we get exposed to the fungicide. Here's another one, rhodonone. Rhodonone is a naturally occurring compound found in the roots of several plants, species. It has been extensively used as an insecticide to kill fish. And you go, well, that's pretty neat. It's natural. Natural doesn't mean it's not toxic, by the way. So we're not going to go there, right? But it explains how all these things happen. It's a great story, and you can go into the details, mechanisms of toxicity, should you want to know that. So yada, yada, Parkinson's disease, you know, and that's been known back since at least here's 2007. Done with that one. Okay, lindane. Lindane is probably the one you've heard most about. And lindane is an insecticide that's used in warehouses to prevent infestation and fumigants on seeds. Not only that, lindane is also used personally for scabies and, and lice. And so in various, and sometimes you even find it in shampoos. So it's so ubiquitous is the word. It's kind of hard to tease it out of our environment, but it's in the family of what they call organochlorines, pesticides, along with DDT. So what's the most famous organochlorine pesticide is DDT. Uh, hexachlorobenzene is another one. Dialdrin is another one. I mentioned that when I was reading before. So these are issues. We can't just pretend, you know, when we talk about ketogenic diet, at least my mind, and I, I tend to think of these other things, it's like I'm saying there's some real dangers out there. So I'm just not going to send you out to go eat veggies because for your 20 grams of veggie carbs per day, let's think about what you're doing. I'm sorry if I'm complicating something that heretofore was serious for you, uh, serious, was simple for you to understand. And now I'm making it progressively more complicated. No, I'm not. I would say if you want to keep a bioorganic first, done, said. The next thought I would go is go look up environmental working group and look at your 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 dirty dozen, as they say, or the clean 15. And so you get a sense of which is the worst culprits of foods. And obviously your worst, you buy the top, the top, uh, the dirty dozen, you buy those all organic. Paraquat, oxidative stress, herbicide, water, and paraquat is a desiccant as well. Paraquat is highly toxic, causing cardiogenic shock. A multi-organ failure can also accumulate in the lungs, cause death from respiratory failure. There you go. And there's a couple pages on that. We're not going to get any farther on that. So you get the sense that what we use on the food that we eat is also going to affect us. And so the us part is it's going to affect some of us more or worse than others. And that depends on susceptibility and it depends on toxic exposure. Are you eating the same foods, same veggies again and again and again that have these specific pesticides, and I'm using that general word, on your foods? I say that's an easy thing to look into. So I've given you a way to do it. I really hope that you think about looking into that. Okay. So it's not just we, we tend to have a black and white attitude in the United States about a lot of things, you know, about politics, about religion, about sex and so on. And I don't know that it's not so black and white. We need to start looking at a larger context. And I'm not saying it gets gray out there. I'm just saying that, yes, sometimes it gets a little more complicated, but guess what? The world wasn't that polluted 50 or 60 years ago. Or let's, let's say the world wasn't that polluted before World War II. And so they did not have to think of this whole category of 
environmental toxicity or environmental medicine. This is a real issue. And you can even say in the last 30 or 40 years, it's become an acute issue. Um, I guess enough said on that, but that's why I'm feeling obligated to bring this in. So let's go to another, another topic of Parkinson's that I think is interesting. It's called this guy named Brack. That's B-R-A-A-K. I think it's called Brack or uh, Brack's hypothesis of Parkinson's disease. So his hypothesis is that for the most part, Parkinson's is is nothing that we is not a pesticide that's soaked through the skin so much, but is let me say this. I'll just read this out. Brack's hypothesis in 2003. Brack, he is from the Netherlands. So he's from the Netherlands. So his whole lab, you know, did enough studies and he came up with a hypothesis and he postulated that an unknown pathogen, virus or bacterium in the gut could be responsible for the initiation of sporadic Parkinson's. There's various kinds of Parkinson's, just like there's various kinds of multiple sclerosis and Alzheimer's and so on and so forth. It's all on a spectrum. And they presented an association staging system and basically saying that he, he called it what it was the double hit hypothesis, stating that Parkinson's starts in two places, the neurons and the nasal cavity and the neurons of the gut. So what do the gut and the nasal cavity have to do? Have to do with those would be your exposures of pesticides. You know, unless you're actually touching this pesticide, you're inhaling it. Think of if you're working, think of these farmers, think of these workers in the farms of California that what happens is the planes are flying over or did fly over or there's dust that's being carried in the wind. Well, that's going to come in through your nose. Okay, now let's say that you're like you or me and you go buy these non-organic veggies in the uh, grocery store. How are you going to get exposure there? Or you could say, well, maybe from touching, but for the most part, it's, you know, these toxins have been absorbed into what you're about to eat. So you eat it, it's in your gut. So what he talks about is the double hit hypothesis. And from these places, the pathology is to spread according to a specific pattern via the olfactory tract and the vagus nerve, respectively, towards and within the central nervous system. So he goes, they very much, this isn't just thinking it up in his garage. He maps out the whole thing. He justifies it. And um, you may or may not be familiar with the whole work on microbiome, which is basically from your large intestine and your small intestine, all the bacteria and the viruses and these other components that make up your microbiome. And it varies in every person. But what they've discovered is that depending on your microbiome, it sends the signal up your vagus nerve. So it sees the vagus nerve as kind of a highway of messages. And so up the vagus nerve can also carry various toxins, or they can also carry various byproduct of toxins. So let's say you are exposed to this sort of, this material, it may change a lot of your microbiome, right? Because you've eaten these things. And it could be the toxins from the bacteria and the viruses and so on and so forth, how it's changed your microbiome. So anyway, the double hit hypothesis was through the nose and through the vagus nerve up from your gut. And they were the first to really get into mapping that out. So that's an interesting article. 
All right, put that aside. Early, the role of early life environmental risk factors for Parkinson's disease. What is the evidence? This isn't a fun thing to read because what if you're a parent of young children, or if you're a parent of any children, some things are a little bit too late, but the idea is that maybe the seeds for these issues are sown early in life. And indeed, that's usually the case. Not always, but it could be the case. So it could be what they were exposed to. If you if you lived in the area, that would be the number one. You're living in the area in which these particular pesticides are being used. Um, secondarily, would be your consuming food that has these pesticides on it. And third would be, and it's least studied, is that you've acquired these from uh, your mother uh, in utero when, you know, from what she, her exposure had been, what she had accumulated in her uh, lifetime. And um, here's a little bit of a tangent. I find it fascinating, a lot of things. And so when a mother starts to produce milk for the first child, she actually, it's, it's the most... How do I say it's the most, if a mother is full of toxins, it's going to come out in her breast milk for the first child. It's actually in a way of cleaning the mother and toxifying the uh, the child. The second child is less so because the, the breast milk and the mother has already, you know, already had that toxic dump from her fat cells that then became, you know, uh, milk producing cells. And so the cleanest, so I'm number six in a, in a family of six. So in the least I can say, I got the cleanest breast milk from my mother and my first my oldest sister uh, got the worst, but this is not meant to be humorous in any way because when we think of the Inuits, you know, uh, we've talked about the history of fasting and the ketogenic diet, and we talked about the explorer Stefansson, Vilmar Stefansson, who ended up at Dartmouth, and uh, he was in the Arctic pretty much from the 18, uh, 1904 to 1916 and did a lot of amazing things, and he lived with the Inuits, and he came back and just ate meat for two years to show that, you know, just eating meat is fine, which is pretty impressive. But he could not go back and live like he did then today because the walruses and the seals, they have all bioaccumulated all these toxins. And now the local Inuits that had been doing traditionally what they had been done before, they bioaccumulated. So the women, they tested the breast milk of the Inuits, and there's at least 10 or 15 different locations, they found that the women's naturally produced human milk for their kids was too toxic to give to their children so that they had to be on a formula. So that's how important mother's breast milk is relative to toxicity levels. Okay, say recent epidemiological studies have focused on the possible role of environmental risk factors present during adult life or aging. Smoking and coughing and drinking have consistently been identified to have positive protective associations for Parkinson's. That's a good news. So if you're a smoker, drinker, or coffee drinker, you're good. Actually, it's just smoking and coffee drinking, not alcohol. So uh, it's a little bit of a jump. I'm being a bit facetious there. Sometimes there's a way of looking at maybe smoking tends to mask, you know, so the, the nicotine and so on and so forth tends to mask that, mask that. So they don't know if it's protective. What they do know, the people that do this behavior have less incidence of Parkinson's. They don't know if it's masked or it is protective. It's That has to be really looked at a lot more closely. All they know is fewer signs of Parkinson's symptoms. 
infections early in life, possibility, I'm not going to go into it, but one of the theories is, I won't even go into the theories, I'll just leave it, exposure early life through the mother and so on and so forth. And then they even go into one, seasonal birth patterns, that there is a greater increase of Parkinson's, I can go into other neurological, actually it's MS, ALS, and Parkinson's appear to have an excess of spring births. So if you say spring births, why would that be? Well, if you think of 10 months previous, it's probably in the height of when these, when the baby was conceived, that that's when they had the greatest exposure to these particular pesticides, wherever they were. So that gives a seasonality, seasonality aspect to it. Low level, low level of pesticides disrupt cells in a way that mimics the effects of mutations known to cause Parkinson's disease. Okay, that's pretty much saying the same thing, but that was 2018, so this is not an old topic. Uh, 2014, genomic and pharmacogenomic uh, markers of Parkinson's disease, environmental exposure to pesticides and the risk of Parkinson's disease in the Netherlands, environmental exposure and Parkinson's disease, 2016. So on and on and on and on and on it goes that um, the takeaway is pretty obvious at this point, right? That it's, these things are out there. And what I hope, if you're listening to this, you're seeing not this, not just, oh my gosh, and you're thinking about, let's say, Michael J. Fox or Alan Alda or the Pope or wherever you know that has Parkinson's, but you should really be thinking about all neurological diseases in general and exposure to pesticides and the the use of pesticides. And now I'm speaking about residential use. You know, you can still get Roundup and yet in your, in your, for all your uses. So not everybody knows that glyphosate was bad and yet you can get a ton of it and people put it on their hands and so on and so forth. It's terrible. And now I've just gone through at least four pesticides that are associated with Parkinson's and they're still available. So th the thing with that is, and you, this could be, well, of course it comes down to personal responsibility. I hope that's the takeaway message. So when your personal responsibility is maybe you should be careful and I hope you don't get pessimistic and say, well, you know, when our time is here, our time is here. I'm for trying to have a slightly cleaner environment. I'm for not having in utero exposure to children that have no control over life and being handicapped from the beginning. So that's why I'm spreading this particular word. So there you go. We have, in one way, we have ketones improving, visibly improving Parkinson's. And the other way we have, it's an environmental exposure that we can prevent. That's the takeaway. Okay, we talk about another study from Nebraska, 2016, and on and on it goes. So... All right, now I get to some supplements, which people can say, and, and let's use a little intuition first before we get into the the list. I'm not going to go into great detail, but we already talked about one of the pesticides effects of mitochondria specifically. And you go, hmm, well, maybe we should use supplements for the mitochondria. And for those of you who remember listening to at least the last podcast on fasting, we found that five-day fasts, that was the fasting mimicking diet, a five-day fast once a month for three months it seemed to reduce the autoimmune, this is what Parkinson's would be, 
the autoimmune uh, autoimmune diseases period and multiple sclerosis another neurological disease was used as an example so that's there's ways you can address this and think about what you can do so it's not a pessimistic takeaway they're all fated to have parkinsons or something okay now to the supplement so as i mentioned about mitochondria the obvious supplement would be coq10 coq10 is not the cheapest supplement to take but it is part of what they call the respiratory chain of the mitochondria. It's one of the key ingredients for the mitochondria. You take it, you will notice it, and you need to just keep taking it. And I just want to say FYI, if you start taking it, usually if you have a reason to take it, taking it three times a day, and um, I'm, gonna, I'm not even give you, not going to give you a dose. I'm just going to give you this list because you're going to need to work with somebody if, if, if you are the person I'm talking to that has Parkinson's or something, that when you stop taking it, you're going to find a withdrawal effect. So it's not for nothing to speak grammatically incorrect. Vitamin B, B6, niacin, riboflavin, B3 and NADH, vitamin E and vitamin C, thiamine. Thiamine is interesting. That, and, and these are supplements used with people that are not on the ketogenic diet. So we don't know. I mean, a lot of these things could be less necessary because it's a whole different metabolism when you have a high-carb diet. And uh, uh, so, for instance, uh, you need a lot less vitamin C when you're in ketogenic diet than you do when you're having a lot of carbs. And there's a reason for that. We've talked about it in previous podcasts. Okay, we're going to leave it at that. So glutathione, of course, uh, glutathione is something you can take. NAC is a precursor to glutathione, so it's always a good thing to take. It's cheap. It's ubiquitous. You can find it out. Uh, uh, every company makes that. And um, one of the, just pulling this out of the back of my head, one of the genetic mutations for that showed increased susceptibility to Parkinson's after exposure was those genes that actually made uh, glutathione glutathione synthase, so made glutathione. So I hope that that gives you an idea of, gosh, maybe I should eat organic. Maybe I should get rid of some of those pesticides, you know, in our garage. It's just not a free lunch. In this last 50 years, we thought, you know, better living through chemistry. Well, we're now finding there's a severe downside to that chemistry, and it has to be used with great, great, great discretion. Am I blaming anybody? No, I'm just saying that I feel impelled to illustrate the larger picture of what is helpful to Parkinson's and what is, so you have supplementation, you have what we call it the detox program, the deparation, and you work with special doctors about that. You also work about avoidance. You know, avoidance has to be part of it. So uh, turning a deaf ear to this stuff at the same time of counseling Parkinson's patients about ketosis and ketones is is kind of stupid in my mind, frankly. You know, you need to show the big picture. All right, so to that, this has been a slightly shorter podcast. It was a focused topic and I really wanted to get it off my chest and, you know, give it to you so it was understandable to everybody. I'm going to close, but as always, I hope that you engage in the ketogenic diet. I hope that you get your ketometer and a glucometer, and you don't need to do this for the rest of your life. You know, we have 
coached a number of people in groups of 10. We'll continue to do so. We're hoping to develop a, uh, we will be developing a coaching program that is part paid for and in part have access to open-ended questions at a certain time of week. But we're progressing in that direction. I want to make it a very good and uh, multi-component keto coaching, talking about some of the topics we're talking here. All right, till next time, get started. If you have any questions, please get back in touch with me. So that's Dr. Goldcamp, D-R-G-O-L-D-K-A-M-P, at um, ketonaturopath.com. Look forward to answering questions. Look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening. For anybody who has any questions, feel free to contact me on our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Same name as our podcast. I'm open to any questions and we plod through the good and the bad, the difficult and the easy week after week.